Before we start this morning, I want to uh, remind you of our series in the evening, just a four-part series on biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, Last week, we dealt with God's good design, and this week, we move into uh, that design being marred by the fall, and in particular, looking at the relationship between men and women and the impact that the fall had uh, on our relationship. I want to give you a heads up of how we're going to be dealing with that. Obviously, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, we'll be going back to Genesis 3 and tracing the temptation and the way that it worked, uh, and then looking at the impact of it, really not only the curse of God on sin um, and on the serpent, but also the effect on men and women, their relationship, their roles. And then we're going to at least mention the various ways the Scripture Um, what the Scripture deals with through particularly the historical books, the kinds of sins that cropped up very early on that were a distortion of God's perfect design. Now, what that means, and I'm telling this particularly for your parents, and I think uh, Jonathan's already given you uh, fair warning, that means that there are going to be terms that, particularly if you have younger kids, you probably haven't talked about with them yet before. It'd probably be good if you were the one that talked with them about it, but it will be you that will need to judge uh, when you talk with them. What I'm hoping is that since I'm not digging into this deeply, uh, that those terms are kind of just go right over their head, but be prepared, parents, for having an age-appropriate answer uh, for some of the terms that we will use. But we need to deal with them because we need to see that that, while some of these things are uh, celebrated today, there are still a lot of the kinds of sins that are still repugnant to our culture uh, that were the result of the fall and how it marred the relationship between men and women. And there's been just tremendous uh, impact uh, consequences uh, because of the way sin works in us and the impact it has on our marriages. So it's not going to all be negative, um, but it, we are dealing with that negative part. That our next series will be talking about Christ and the apostles, their example, um, in terms of how they interacted um, with women. And uh, so you have biblical manhood, womanhood, and their example. And then finally, in our last session, which will be the end of the month after the member series, uh, we'll be talking about the apostles' directives to churches in, in light of God's design, in light of the fall, Uh, how do we handle that? So it's really, uh, whenever we deal with these kinds of topics, it's kind of like a 30,000-foot flyover, Um, but I'm just giving you a heads up that there'll be some terms that are not normally what you hear from the pulpit, although they are terms that are in the Bible. So um, anyway, hopefully it will be helpful to you because really you are um, disciple makers of your kids and they, they need help. The enemy is already addressing them uh, at cartoon level and everything else right down to, you know, elementary school and, and preschool, um, confronting them with deviations and perversions from God's truth. And you don't want the voice of God to be the only voice missing in the marketplace of ideas as far as what your kids are thinking about. So enough said. And you know, a lot of times what happens is what we're covering in the evening, what we're covering in the morning end up pairing up. So it's kind of like a, a brace of messages today that help us with what is a prevailing difficulty in our time. Our text this morning begins with the words, finally then. 
And we might think that finally means finale, the last thing. They literally read, for the rest. So rather than signaling the end of the letter, these words mark a shift of focus from what Paul prays for the Thessalonians as believers facing pressure for their faith, and he, he moves to the practical behavior and action that ought to characterize their daily lives as true followers of Christ. True biblical doctrine never remains theoretical and academic. It always generates and corresponds to practical lifestyle. Knowledge alone is never enough. By itself, knowledge alone generates smug pride. And we must live what we know, and when we do, our lives will be marked by humility and love. And I think we're particularly prone to this in a, a city with Christian schools and uh, lots of churches. We're prone to feel secure because of what we know rather than what we actually practice. And the sins that we'll talk about today and the, the call to sanctification and purity is a call that Paul directed to the church in Thessalonica, people that were generally born again, and it's a call that God would direct to us as well. Paul has just related to them that he prays that God will establish their hearts blameless in holiness before the Lord. That's a, a blamelessness and a holiness that's deep. It's not just surface. It's not just putting on a good face. It's what you actually are and how you actually think in your heart. And that raises the practical question what does that holiness of heart look like? And, and how does our relationship to God actually produce it? In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, you're going to give us help in answering that question as we study this morning, God-driven purity. In verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 4, follow with me as I read, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you." Four truths that we're going to look at, four areas we're going to look at related to God driving our purity. First off, in verses 1 through 3, the pleasure of God. We abstain from sexual immorality to please Him. So, you know, what's helpful about all these things is, is elevating it from just the horizontal and just the human level, and we're going to connect vertically to God, the pleasure of God. Second, the knowledge of God. Those who know God honor Him with holy self-control, verses 4 and 5. And then in verse 6, the justice of God. God avenges those against whom we sin in this area. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, the call of God. 
God has called us to holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's start with the first principle that Paul lays out here, and that is the pleasure of God. We abstain from sexual immorality to please God. And this is so important because pleasure often is what's driving the temptation into sexual sin. And rather than our being focused on our own pleasure, we want to focus first on God's pleasure. We were created to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, to find our pleasure in Him and in His pleasure. So, verses 1 through 3 again, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, Paul is reiterating what he and the other missionaries have already taught the new believers in Thessalonica. The missionaries are there only a short time before they had to leave, and yet they had already connected the gospel to lifestyle. Making disciples is not just sharing the good news of the gospel but also teaching those who've received it and have thus identified with Christ to observe His commands, just as Jesus gave us in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Observing His commands produces a life of good works, and that's good not just in terms of being in line with God's definitions of right and wrong, but also good in terms of being beneficial rather than harmful to others. God has been completely clear about this area of human life. You'll note the progression of words that Paul uses. He starts with, we ask you to live this way. And then he says, we urge you, we exhort you, we're coming alongside you to live this way. And then he says, we deliver to you instructions. And and that word actually, instructions is a little bit weak for what the term actually is. It's actually directives like military commands or like an order from a civil magistrate. So, this is like stuff you have to do. You're under court order. You're under uh, military orders to live this way. We gave these to you. And then finally, he refers to this command as the will of God. It's what God wishes and what God desires. You put all that together, and you've got um, the, these missionaries who care for these believers, they've, they're urging them, they're asking them, they're exhorting them, they're giving them directives from God, they're talking about the will of God, they're talking about what pleases Him and what God desires. And all this relates to how you ought to walk, how it is necessary for you to walk. And this is all to please God. As children of God, we want to obey the law because we love the lawgiver and therefore want to please Him. You know, with your children, when you're training them to, to obey, you know, you have to, you have to teach them that, that disobedience brings punishment, that it brings pain. But, but what you want to see develop in them is where they're motivated not just by whether they'll get in trouble but they're motivated because they actually love mom and dad. They, they want to do what they know pleases them. They value the relationship. Well, it brings us pleasure 
to please those that we love. And this is especially so when we talk about those who love God. If we love God, we want to bring Him pleasure. We delight to do so. And Paul says, you're already doing this, but we want you to do it more and more. Each one of us needs ongoing growth in living for God's pleasure. And we do so as the Holy Spirit progressively sanctifies us toward greater Christ-likeness. Christ said, I always do what pleases my Father. And so, you know, we have lots of voices in our lives. We have lots of appeals. We have our own fleshly appetites. We have all kinds of things clamoring for control of our lives. But we want to live life not driven by those desires and not driven by those false voices. We want to live our lives to the pleasure of God. And His will, His desire is our sanctification. He's making us holy. The foundation of our holiness is our belonging to God, and because we belong to God, we, we become more and more like Him. The, more, the closer we are to Him, because of who God is and what He's like, our belonging to Him as His born-again children, that belonging to Him causes us to grow in holiness and in purity that looks like His own character, that looks like Jesus. Now, Christians today are under tremendous pressure to conform to a culture that practices and celebrates sexual immorality, and it just permeates our culture. And I want to just caution you a little bit because I think it's easy for us to adopt kind of a self-righteous spirit about the, the particular sexual sins that, that maybe we're not prone to and we're not involved in, and to ignore the ones that we are, okay? Let's recognize that, that the things that have happened recently in our culture are, are, not, are not, you know, sexual sin didn't just show up in the 1990s or at the turn of the century. That, that this has been celebrated and promoted in, in godless culture for a long time. But in our current culture, we're accused of being unloving if we do not accept and affirm these sins against God's perfect design for human sexuality. Proponents of the new sexual ethic argue that times have changed from the prudish Victorian era and that our practice of Christianity needs to change with them. Some even go so far as to say Jesus would approve our embracing these sins and our welcoming professing believers who practice them without repentance as members in good standing. But such false teaching utterly ignores that the early church was founded in a culture even more committed to sexual sins and perversions than our own, at least so far. The New Testament commands for sexual purity were profoundly countercultural in Paul's day. Both Thessalonica and Corinth, from which Paul is writing this letter, were infamous for their sexual immorality to the degree that it had for centuries been part of sacred worship in the fertility cults. And of course, we know that that goes way back to ancient times. The Canaanite culture was rife with this. But the Greco-Roman world was intensely sexual immoral. It was considered normal for a married man to have a mistress for companionship, concubines that were slaves, 
along with using prostitutes whenever he wanted. And the function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. This was the norm. This was accepted practice. This was considered just the way life works. In this world where sexual immorality was widely practiced as normal and even celebrated as a sacred rite of worship, the apostles boldly declare, abstain from sexual immorality. Cut it off totally. It is not an area in which to exercise moderation. It's not an area in which to compromise, let alone to affirm in order to ingratiate yourself to a pervasive culture of the times. The Greek word translated sexual immorality is porneia, and you can see by the very word that it tells you the nature and the goal of what we know as porn today. Pornography is by definition images and literature portraying sexual immorality, and its design is to lead us into sexual sins of the mind and of the body. God calls us to abstain from porneia. And so we pray, as Christ taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Or as Paul admonished, don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the desires of it. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter appeals to the saints, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, you are citizens of a heavenly kingdom that goes by different rules. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. God commands purity and holiness of mind and body, both inward and outward. That is the ruling of the highest court in the universe. That is, those are the directives. Those are the orders. That is the order of the Lord of angelic armies. So this raises a question for us who live in the kind of culture that we live in with the kind of access that we have. What are your strategies for abstaining from any form of sexual sin? In what ways are you letting the dogma of the world in rebellion against God, and I call it dogma because it is dogma. They, they, de they declare this as doctrine. It's another gospel. The dogma of the world in rebellion against God, how are you letting it shape your thinking regarding sexuality? And, and you, you know, this, this is subtle. This, you can be, you can be, you can be watching a movie or, or listening to people talk where there's, there's not anything, you know, in your face objectionable, and yet they are promoting a way of looking at life that, that is undermining the reality of what God wants for us, and we have, we have to guard against it. What voices are you heeding contrary to the voice of God, and how much time do you spend listening to them rather than words from God Himself. You know, in almost every case that I know of, of, of Christian deconstruction or Christians defecting from the faith, there's an inordinate amount of time spent drinking from the well of false doctrine and false views of life and, and a decrease of actually paying attention to what God has to say. You can't survive this battle if you're not listening to what God has said, if you're not immersing yourself in that. So what would your daily living look like if the pleasure 
of God were your greatest goal. I mean, think about starting the day that way. Think about saying, God, you know, you know my weaknesses. You know my appetites. You know what temptations I'm going to face. You know, lead me not in temptation. Help me live to your pleasure today. God, help me seek your pleasure above all else. Above my own pleasure, let me seek yours. And of course, we find that as we seek God's pleasure, we find pleasure. Number two, the knowledge of God. Those who know God honor him with holy self-control. That each of one of you, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, the ethnicities who do not know God. So knowing the true and living God is what makes the difference in the lives of believers in Thessalonica compared with those around them. The pagan ethnicities worship idols, gods that are not actual gods. In fact, Paul is going to say elsewhere, behind these gods empowering them are actual demons. So Satan is at work through them. Idolatry deified human lust and sanctioned immoral worship and living. So to live in the passion of sexual desire is the lifestyle of idol worshipers, not the life pattern of those with an experiential knowledge of God. Which God are you worshiping? That is the key. What God do you actually know, do you have a relationship with? In fact, Paul ties this closely together in Romans 1. He says, therefore, God gave them up. This is because they didn't like to acknowledge God as God and honor Him as God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is just talking about any kind of sexual sin. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's not surprising that our culture is taking the track that it is. Was that a bird? That was really loud. Wow. Uh, you heard it too, right? Okay. I'm not just hearing things. Okay. Good. Now I've got to find what I was, because what I was saying is not in my notes. Let me see if I can pull it, pull it uh, back in. Oh, I've totally forgotten. Oh, well, the birds of the air. All right. I might think of it later. Who knows? Or maybe God is just checking me. Okay. God's will is that each of us would know how to control his own body. And, and the language that's used here is actually fairly difficult. Uh, there's a division over what it means. It's literally how to possess his own or acquire his own vessel. So the language can refer to one's monogamous devotion to his wife, since marriage is God's gift to humanity. So it could be translated, and your translation might have something like to acquire a wife for himself. Okay. Only in the marriage relationship do we fulfill human sexual desire legitimately and to God's glory. It is part of the creation mandate. It's part of the creation blessing. Its design is more than, than just pleasure. It has a purpose for filling the earth, subduing it, and exercising dominion over it. Well, Paul writes these words from Corinth 
where sexual immorality was pervasive. And here's what he said to the Corinthian believers trying to live for God in, in an immoral culture. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He's not saying that everybody should marry, but he is saying that those who are married should have each other sexually. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband, for the, body does not, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And this isn't just male domination, because likewise a husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You, you give yourselves to each other to have and to hold from this day forward. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, part of, part of having a legitimate outlet for our sexuality, our human sexuality that's a gift from God, is marriage where God created it to be practice. Our translation, our translation reflects another interpretation that possessing one's vessel could refer to exercising control over one's own body in contrast to letting the passion of lust rule your body. And this is to be done in holiness and honor. When we use the body for sexual immorality, we dishonor God and we dishonor ourselves just as we've read in Romans 1. John Stott puts it this way, according to God's purpose, the context for sex is marriage, and the style of sex is honor. So, it's, it's not just, you know, I get married so that I can use another person, but rather that this relationship is properly exercised within the security, the sacredness, the safety of a, a love relationship and care for one another he goes on to say, there's a world of difference between lust and love, between dishonorable sexual practices which use the partner and true lovemaking which honors the partner, between selfish desire to possess and the unselfish desire to love, cherish, and respect. We might ask the question, what if you're not married? What if we're not married? How can you maintain purity? Now, it's a practical question. Because there are many in the body of Christ who are not married. Even those who are married right now have not been married their entire lives and will not be married their entire lives. There are significant years before they were married. And unless God takes both of you and your spouse home in the same instant, one or the other of you will be single again. And those of you, just for the sake of those of you that have never been married before, let me say that those who are married know that even with this proper outlet that you still have to exercise self-control. They're, they're still keeping this under the authority of God is important. John Stott, who has really a really helpful commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, um, John Stott, who I've just quoted himself, never married. He was a single man. So he writes to his fellow singles, we shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, that is, that it fits. 
provided we submit to it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. It's not good for human beings to be alone, and God provides all kinds of community and relationship for us. It doesn't have to be this particular area of relationship for life to be fulfilling. And in fact, if a husband and wife want their life to be fulfilling, it can't be just this. It has to be in the context of the the broader relationship and affection. Well, it's no wonder then that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. In other words, God Himself is the one who will execute justice against those who commit sins in this area. There's nowhere to run or to hide from Him. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person… You know what? I just jumped. I just totally jumped. Okay, between birds and reading the wrong page, I'm going, why am I talking about this yet? Okay, I want to back up. Y'all were wondering what I was doing, right, in the booth? I was going off track. Okay, we just talked about John Stott. We just talked about being single. I would remind you that Paul himself was unmarried. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, you could be an apostle who's writing Scripture, and you still need to fight this battle. You still need to keep your body under control. Okay, here are the applications. In what ways does your public and private behavior relating to sexuality show that you know and love the living God? In what ways does your public and private behavior convey that you worship the idols of the age instead? And in what ways are you controlling your body or protecting your marriage in holiness and honor? So the knowledge of God, the relationship with God is going to drive how we behave in this area and is going to give us the reason to control our bodies, to be faithful to our marriages. Number three, the justice of God. God avenges those against whom we sin in this area. Verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, So, transgress, the word transgress means to cross a forbidden boundary. The word wrong is to take more than is rightfully yours, to selfishly disregard the rights of others in doing so. So, here's another reason that helps keep us pure. Sexual sin harms others. It wrongs whomever you use to satisfy your selfish appetites. It breaks faith with your spouse, your family, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ. It directly disobeys the Lord and dishonors Him. And it gives the enemies of God reason to ridicule Him and His people. I mean, they're practicing this. But when a Christian is known to practice these things, they know that Christians shouldn't be doing so. 
It calls into question whether the gospel of Christ really has the power to deliver us from sin. So, no wonder then that the Lord is an avenger of these things. You know, an avenger, an avenger exercises justice where wrong has been done. And so when we wrong others in this area, God himself comes to their defense. The Lord is the one who will execute justice against those who commit sins in this area because these sins harm other people. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide from him. You have to pretend like God's blind and deaf or that he's died to, to keep on practicing these kinds of sins, and particularly as you see it do damage to your marriage, to your family, to your friends, to others, to, to keep on going that route and, and think that somehow you can, you can escape by, well, I'll just end the marriage, or I'll just move to another state, or I'll just do this or that or the other. You can't escape God. He's everywhere. He's the avenger. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And Paul says, we told you this beforehand and solemnly warned you. It's an intensive form of bearing witness. It's to solemnly testify in the courtroom. It's the same word that, that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you, talking to Timothy, in the presence of God. So I solemnly witness. I'm, I'm calling you to account here. And of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So, so just as Timothy was to be faithful to preaching the word and not other things, and to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That kind of commitment to God is the same kind of commitment we have. The Lord is an avenger, and, and Paul and his missionary friends warned, solemnly testified to the believers in Thessalonica of this reality. And, and think about how foreign that had to sound in a world that was totally given over to sexual immorality. So, two questions for us, a negative and a positive. If the Lord avenges crossing the boundaries and wronging others in this area, how can you or I expect to escape His justice if we do not repent from such sin and make it right with God and with one another. You know, th this kind of sinning is so pervasive and so common, it's, it's easy for us to argue that, well, I'll just live with it. Instead of living with it, why don't you treat it for what it is and make it right between you and God? And if you've harmed others in this area, to make it right with them. How can knowing, and, and here's the positive, how can knowing that God is watching and will call you to account help you avoid making provision for the flesh or falling into these sins? I mean, think about the mindset. If, if you're going through your day and through your night and your public and private times and you're thinking about the fact that God is completely aware of what's going on and that you live before Him, and that, that he's going to exercise justice in the area, how can this help you in this battle? Finally, number four, the call of God. God has called us to holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The call of God to turn our hearts to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is a call to holy living, living that reflects being restored to a vital relationship with Him. The human race lost that close relationship when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God in the garden. His power, God's power, is a clean power. He calls us, and it's an effectual call, to purity and cleanness of heart and life. He washes us with the water of the Word. We've been rescued from corruption and death and be given life and health and peace. Our filth has been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. He says, I'm forgiving you because my Son has paid the price for your sin. I will wash you clean from it. So God's call is powerful. It transforms who we are because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. God's life in us through the person of the Holy Spirit purifies us from the inside out. Peter talks about it, 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, that's human seed, but of imperishable, that's spiritual seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Or 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let your body be part of the worship to God rather than worship to idols. Contrary to the popular argument today that sexual purity is just conforming to outdated human tradition, our text declares that the call to purity and holiness is from God Himself. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives the Holy Spirit to us. So closing your heart to God's call to sexual purity and holiness is rejecting God Himself, and in particular, the Holy Spirit and His transforming work in your life. I want you to think for a moment about what a gift the Spirit is to us. He is the divine helper, according to John 14 through 16, who comes alongside us to strengthen us. He indwells you. He motivates and empowers you to do God's will. You're not an orphan. You're not alone in this battle. God is with you all the days. His life is in you, and it's powerful enough to raise the dead. The Spirit of God enables you to fight this battle for purity and succeed to the glory of God. Paul says it this way to the Galatians who thought that they could become more holy by their rules rather than through their relationship to God. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And note what he starts with, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's use of drugs, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, wild parties, and things like this. I urge you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why is that? 
Because living this way shows you're rejecting the king of the kingdom. It's not that we never fall to any of these sins, but it is saying that for my pattern of life to be this is to demonstrate I don't even know the God of the universe, that I'm, I, I'm not a citizen of the kingdom. So that raises us to the really serious question. How certain are you that you actually belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son? If God is powerful enough to raise your body from the dead, don't you think He's powerful enough for you to control the passions of the body and to live in newness of life in this area of sexual purity? What would happen if you're sure that you belong to the Lord, what would happen if you were to be regularly praying for God to keep you pure and to make you holy every day? And in what ways are you actively leaning on His power to accomplish His will in your life for your sanctification? You know, there's all kinds of techniques and, and strategies and that, that we might use, but I think apart from God Himself, this is not a winnable war. And you don't want to put your confidence in your own ability, in your own flesh, and certainly not in a world like ours, okay? You've got to have something stronger than just what you can muster up. It's got to even be stronger than an accountability relationship or something like that. There are other techniques you can use, but, but ultimately it is this. It has to be a God-driven purity. It's got to be driven by the pleasure of God. We abstain from sexual morality to please God. The knowledge of God because we know God, we want to honor Him with holy self-control. The justice of God, we know that God avenges those against whom we sin in this area and the call of God. God has called us to holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we have hope. And, and that's actually what demonstrates that the gospel is for real. It's actually the power of God unto salvation to save to the uttermost those that trust in him. Let's pray. Oh God, you know better than anyone else in the room where each of us are in this battle for purity. And God, I pray that you would help us to, to get real with you and to find, to find forgiveness and strength and motivation to live and shine in this area of sanctification, of, puriness, of purity, of holiness, for your glory, to your pleasure, for the good of those around us, and for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. For it's in his name.